As we uh, progress through the book of Ephesians, you're going to notice a really significant difference between the first half of this letter and the second half of the letter. The first half is packed with a ton of truth. The first half of Ephesians is about who God is and who we are in light of that and about God's grace toward us. The second half, which is what will actually begin next week, is filled with really the implications of all of that truth. There are a lot more directives in the second half of Ephesians about how to actually live out this life, live out of our identity, and live out of the grace that God has given us. And our text this morning is Ephesians 3, verses 14 through 21, and it really serves as the bridge between these two halves of the letter. Because if these men and women in Ephesus are going to be able to pursue the kinds of things that the Apostle Paul is going to call them to as he gets to that in the second half of the letter, they're going to need strength to do that. And so Paul accordingly prays that these men and women would be strengthened. So you can follow along with me. I'm going to read Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 21. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. This is God's word. Let me pray. God, you are the one to whom all glory is due. And thank you that sometimes Paul and other writers of Scripture can't contain their joy in that, and so it just erupts out of them in little doxologies like this. Um, through this prayer, God, we pray that, that we would be those who, who receive the same gifts that the Ephesians receive as Paul prays for their strength. May we be strengthened. We need to be strengthened. As, as we heard and as we sang, our strength fails. We need to be strengthened by you. We pray that even in our few moments together this morning, that you would begin to do that work to strengthen us, to strengthen us again. So meet us, work in us, break up hardness in our heart. We pray that in your name. Amen. The the Anglican pastor and scholar, I'm sure many of you are familiar with him, named John Stott, he once said this. He once said, one of the best ways to discover a Christian's chief anxieties and ambitions is to study the content of his prayer and the intensity with which he prays them. We all pray about what concerns us, and and we are evidently not concerned about matters we do not include in our prayers. What he's saying when he says that is that that prayer is revealing. It's revealing. It's a little bit like if you want to know what somebody really cares about, You don't just listen to what they say. That's one way to know what someone cares about. But maybe a better way is to look at their bank statement. That often speaks louder than what they actually say is important in their life. Similarly, 
the content, the intensity of our prayers reveals what we're really excited about or what we're really concerned about or what we really long for and hope for, both for ourselves, what what we personally long for and hope for, and what we long for and hope for on behalf of, of others. In many of his letters, and Ephesians is one of them, the Apostle Paul, he, he offers these heartfelt prayers on behalf of the people that he's writing to. And that's what we have here in this text in Ephesians chapter 3. Paul is on his knees, which is this posture of humility, and this posture of dependence, and this posture of submission before God. And he's asking God to do the kind of work that, that only God can do. He's praying that God would strengthen these men and women. And as he walks his way through this prayer, we see a few different pieces of what it means to be strengthened. That's where we're going to spend our time this morning. We're strengthened with power. We're strengthened in love. And we're strengthened for God's glory. Strengthened with power, strengthened in love, and strengthened for God's glory. So Paul here prays, And you see it there in verse 16, that these men and women in Ephesus would be strengthened with power. And power is one of those concepts that elicits a quick gut-level response from all of us. Okay, Some of us really want power. We really want it. Whenever it's possible to get it, we want it. And others of us tend to want to stay as far away from power as possible. And that gut-level response really tells us a lot, usually, about the particular kinds of sin patterns that we're going to deal with when it comes to power. Those of us who really want power are probably those most likely to abuse it, to use it for self-serving purposes. On the other hand, those who want to stay as far away from power as possible are probably those who are prone to abdicate, to, to not step into those places where they're meant to use power for good purposes. So the first thing that we really need to see from Paul's prayer is that power is good. Power is good. It's something that we as Christians are meant to have, are meant to possess. And Paul wouldn't pray this, that people would have that, that have power, if it was inherently evil or inherently wrong. Power is like money, or power is like sex. It's something that's been given as a good gift from God, but which is quickly and very easily corrupted and distorted by our perversions of it. And there are a thousand specific perversions of it. Power is not something to be abused, but nor is it something that we should keep, you know, that we wouldn't even touch with a, with a 10-foot pole. Instead, we need to redeem and to refine our understanding of power as a good gift from God. And the way that we begin to do that is to see both power's origin and power's ends. Where does it come from, and what is it for? And there's a few answers that Paul offers to those questions here in this text. So it's from, Paul says, the riches of God's glory. So you have God, who is all-powerful, the one who has created everything, the one from whom every family that has ever existed on the face of the earth has derived its name, as Paul says here. And that means that any kind of power that you and I have as human beings is going to be derived power. So God has inherent power. He has power in and of himself. No one gives it to him. He doesn't receive it from anybody. But human power is derived. It's something that is granted from God through his own spirit. 
And that means that when we have power, when we have derived power, it's not ours to use in any way that we would choose to use it. It's actually meant to be shaped by Him. So if that's where it comes from, if that's the origin of power, what's it for? Well, it's for, Paul says, the dwelling of Christ in your heart through faith. So a fundamental use of power in the lives of God's people is to give us faith. And we might not always think of it this way, but it takes power, real and substantial power, to open our eyes to see our need for Jesus. It takes real power for us to believe, to have faith. And we don't possess that power on our own. So God, through His Spirit, breaks up the hardness of our hearts. He tears out the heart of stone and He gives us a heart of flesh, a new heart where Christ may dwell by faith. It's for, this power is for, the comprehension of Christ's love. So it takes real and substantial power to be able to comprehend the love that Christ has for us. And we're going to circle back to that in just a moment. It's also for being filled up with all the fullness of God. It takes power, real and substantial power, to be emptied of ourselves, of our old nature, and these destructive and unloving tendencies that each of us possess, and to be completely remade, to be completely transformed, to be filled with the fullness of God. And notice that all of those ends have to do with what we receive from God. We receive Christ in our hearts, we receive comprehension of his love, and we receive the fullness of God. That is not how, at least if you're like me, how we often think about power. We tend to think about possessing power so that we can assert something or we can accomplish something. But actually central to this redeemed and refined understanding of power is that we first possess power in order to receive things that we desperately need from God. And it's then, and only then, in light of what we have received, that we're able to utilize that power in accordance with God's design. And we see different examples of this in Scripture, where power is actually meant to be used for the thriving and flourishing of people. So God gives human beings power over the rest of creation. People are meant to exercise stewardship or dominion to cultivate what God has created. And then there are these different human relationships where power is given by God as well. Governments and people in the workplace, in the church, in the home. Now we all know, whether experientially or just from other people, that there are dangers in exerting this power in perverse ways. We've all seen or experienced abuses of that. But let's make sure that we also see the dangers of refusing to exert power where it's meant to be exerted. And one huge example is this systemic epidemic issue of fatherlessness in our culture today. So thousands and thousands of kids in our society today don't have dads who are present in their lives. And thousands and thousands more have dads who might be physically present in their lives but are completely passive in the way that they relate to their kids. And when fathers refuse to use the power that they're given by God in that role to love and protect and care for their children, it does unspeakable damage. And it does that damage usually not just in that generation, but for generations to come. Some of you have experienced that in tragic ways in your own life. 
something else to consider here. One of the explicit reasons that God has given this power to his people is so that Christ may dwell in our hearts. And that means that you and I, with Christ dwelling in our hearts, we are stewards of the presence of God. We are stewards of the presence of Christ. So the question we have to ask is, what kind of damage does it do when the presence of Christ is not felt the way it's meant to be felt in the world? God's power is meant to be perceived. It's not meant to be hidden. It's meant to be perceived. It's meant to be known. It's meant to be felt in the world. And it's a It's a subversive kind of power. It's a paradoxical kind of power. It's not the kind of power that we tend to see around us most of the time. But it is power. And we've got no better example of that than than Jesus. Jesus was not powerless. He was not impotent. He was meek. And meekness is not an avoidance of power. Meekness is actually power applied mercifully. And in Jesus' case, it's all the power of the universe applied in a merciful way for the good of of people. So you and I will actually rob the world of flesh and blood examples of that merciful power of Jesus if we abdicate, if we refuse to step into this good gift of power and use it in the way that it's meant to be used. So may we be people instead, like Paul prays for the Ephesians, that are strengthened with power. Now as you might imagine, This power has a very specific shape. And so in the same breath that Paul prays that that people would be strengthened with power, he prays that they would also be strengthened in love. And that's our second point this morning. Christians are rooted and grounded in love. It's the language that Paul uses here in this text. That's that's our identity. So we receive this power from God that, that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith. How do we receive that? It's through the initiating love of God. And the good news of the gospel is not that that we have worked our way up to to love God in in a great and good way. It's that actually that he has loved us and that he has sent Jesus to accomplish our salvation. So actually, this is something that's already true for us. We're already rooted and grounded in love. That's part of our identity as Christians. But what Paul is praying here is also that as we as that's true already about us, that we would more and more be rooted, that we would more and more be grounded, that we might more and more live out of that identity that we already have. And specifically, Paul prays that we would have strength to comprehend the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Would you wrestle for just a moment this morning with me with this, this apparent contradiction. How do you know something that surpasses knowledge? How can you come to know something that, is, that cannot be known? And the answer must be something like that we can know things truly without knowing things fully. That we can know truly without knowing Fully, it must be in some way possible to know in part, and that part to actually be the genuine article of the real thing, even if it's not the whole thing. And the image of an iceberg maybe is helpful here. When we see an iceberg, the part that we see, it's, it's actually an iceberg. It's part of the iceberg. It's just not even close to the whole thing. 
The difference, of course, with this being that with the love of Christ, we will never, at least in this lifetime, see the whole thing because it surpasses knowledge itself. And that perennial gap that exists between what we know versus what we cannot know, what surpasses knowledge, it will become for all of us one of two things. The gap will become one of two things. It will either become futility or it will become fuel. So for some, it will become futility. Like if, I, if I'm supposed to know this, but I can never know it fully, then what's the point of even trying? I'm never going to know it. But the thing is, if we've really been rooted and grounded in God's love, it becomes impossible for us to conclude that the pursuit of this is futile. We just can't. Like, even if you want to, even when doubt and frustration and cynicism lead us to walk away, lead us to stiff-arm God for a particular season of our life, if this all-encompassing love of Christ has intervened in your life, then any small taste of that will leave an imprint and will create a longing for more. It changes you in a way that you cannot undo, even in those moments that you might want to undo it. So let me just speak for a moment to any of you who are here this morning and are, and are disillusioned with Jesus or are disillusioned with his people, the church. Would you think back through your life and try to recall a moment when you have experienced the genuine love of Christ? Often that comes through other people, which I think is exactly why Paul prays for strength to comprehend God's love, not in isolation, but together with all the saints. We comprehend the love of Christ better in community than we ever possibly can in isolation. And if you've ever been loved by someone in a moment that you expected to receive condemnation from them, then you know what this love is like. I will um, forever remember a specific instance in my life where beyond a shadow of a doubt, I tasted the genuine article of the love of Christ. About a year into um, dating for Shay and I, we were driving from Kansas City, visiting my family in Kansas City, um, back down to Texas, where, where, we, where we both went to college. And for whatever reason, it became the setting in which I aired a lot of my dirty laundry. So the things that were not pretty about my life, my struggle with pornography, the baggage that I was bringing in from past relationships, those are at least the two that I vividly remember. I'm sure there were maybe other pieces at that same moment. And that is a vulnerable moment when you do that. It's an incredibly vulnerable moment. I was laying out before someone that I cared deeply about something that I despise about myself. The darkest corners of my heart. The darkest corners of my soul. And you just don't know what another person is going to do with that in a moment when you lay that out before them. So, as I shared that, I braced myself for anger, and I braced myself for condemnation, and I braced myself perhaps even to lose someone that I cared deeply about. I didn't, I didn't know what this was going to do. 
But instead of that, I received love in that moment. I received love. And it's one of those moments where heaven just broke through and and the love of Christ was made real in a tangible and personal way. Through another person, through Shay, I experienced what I believe confidently was the genuine love of Christ. And I'll tell you what, it captured my heart. It captured my heart. Not, not that Shay captured my heart, although that I'm sure was happening too at the same time. But Jesus grabbed a hold of my heart. And it was if in that moment he was saying to me, this is what my love is like. This is what my love is like. This is the real thing. So though I cannot fully know the love of Christ, I look to that moment and I, and I see that, that I can at least taste it in part. That I have at least tasted it in part. So instead of feeling like futility, this inability to fully comprehend, to fully know, becomes fuel. I might not know Christ's love completely, but, but knowing even some of it from a moment like that draws me in to want to comprehend more and more of it. I want to know more of the love of Jesus that I tasted in part in that moment. And the same is true, I believe, confidently for all of us who have tasted the love of Christ. Which is why throughout the history of God's people, you've got these beautiful and poetic expressions where people actually celebrate the fact that they cannot fully comprehend the love of Christ. And one of my favorite is only 100 years old. In 1917, Frederick Lehman wrote a hymn called The Love of God. And one of the verses in that hymn goes like this. Could we with ink the ocean fill, and were the skies of parchment made, were every stalk on earth a quill, and every man a scribe by trade, to write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky." like Frederick Lehman does in those words, we're meant to embrace our inability to know fully. And we're meant to let that inability to know fully fuel our worship. And before I move on from this, one just really practical thing. As you do recall where or how or from whom you have experienced these glimpses of the genuine love of Christ, does that person, do those people, do they know that? Do they know how impactful that has been in your life? Because if they don't know that, tell them that. And if they do know that, tell them that again. Because really, few things in life are more encouraging than getting a glimpse of how God has used you to offer his genuine love to another person. So let's name that, let's celebrate that where we see it. And then let's continue to seek to display it in our relationships with with each other, with other people. So we're strengthened with power. We're strengthened in love. Lastly, we're strengthened for God's glory. As he brings the, the first half of this letter to a close, Paul honors God. He erupts in this benediction, this doxology. And he honors God as the one who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think. Think about that phrase for a moment. 
all we ask or think. What is the biggest thing that you have ever asked, asked for in your life? Probably, it's something that you longed for very deeply. Maybe it's even something that hinges on the miraculous, something you couldn't even come close to doing on your own. For a sick person to be healed. For a, a broken relationship to be mended. For some tragedy to be avoided, for some tragedy to be undone. If you think about it and reflect on it, you will come to find we have asked for some huge things throughout the course of our lives. But even crazier, our thoughts often go beyond what we actually verbalize and ask. So another question, what is the best version of reality that you can imagine? What's the best reality that you can imagine? If you were to think deeply about all that was wrong in the world and what it would look like if all of those wrongs were righted. It's likely a a reality that's characterized by a lot of joy. It's free of suffering. It's free of death. It's filled with rest and with satisfaction as opposed to the, the frantic kind of striving that we often feel ourselves and see in the lives of others. It would be a world where these huge systemic issues like poverty and hunger and racism and warfare were non-existent. So there are these things that we ask for, there are these ideal realities that we dream of, and largely they're good things. They're good things. But many of them remain undone. Requests and longings and dreams, they go unfulfilled, they go unmet. And all of a sudden, we have this dilemma. Why don't we get what we ask for? And why doesn't that ideal reality exist? And typically, as we are confronted with that dilemma, we we consider two things in trying to navigate that and wrestle through that. We consider God's ability, and we consider God's nature. In other words, is God able, and is God good? And often we conclude that perhaps he might be one of those things, but not both. So either he is able, but he's not good enough to be willing to make that a reality. Or perhaps he's good and willing, but somehow he is unable to bring it about. And consequently, our vision of God then becomes that either God is impotent, he lacks power, or God is unloving. But look at what Paul has just written here in Ephesians 3. He's telling us that God is able. Able to do not only what we ask, not only on top of that what we think, but far more abundantly than all we ask or think. And he's telling us in the same breath that God is good, that he's a God of love, and so much love that it defies comprehension. It even defies dimensions, the breadth and height and length and depth. So we have to include a third consideration. Not just God's ability, not just God's nature, but God's glory. We need a third question. Not just is God able, not just is God good and therefore willing, but what is going to most display his worth and display his magnificence to the world? And truth be told, and all of us I'm sure have experienced this on the ground in reality, we aren't going to like some of the answers to that third question. Because in addition to to God getting glory from the thriving of his people at times, at other times he's glorified in suffering. Suffering displays the worth and the glory 
of God. So you've got these examples in the early church of the apostles rejoicing that they suffer, that they're imprisoned, that they're beaten. Because in that, they are united with Christ and it shows how worth, how worth it Jesus is to endure that. God is glorified in weakness. We heard that in the words of encouragement today. His power is not made perfect in the areas where we are strong and we say, I'm knocking out of the park. I don't need you, God. His power is made perfect in those areas where we know beyond the shadow of a doubt that we can't do it. And God is glorified in things that expose our dependence. Even huge systemic things like hunger and material want, material need. Even in things that, and then also in things that that show how finite and how limited we are. Like illness and death. We won't delve any any deeper into that this morning. But we should at least come away from Ephesians 3 with this. As Paul speaks of God's power, as he speaks of God's love, he concludes by also speaking of God's glory. And it's as if all three of those things are meant to be carried together and considered together. So likewise, as Paul is able to include all three of those parts in his prayer, may we carry those things together and fight the tendency that we would have to shortchange either God's ability or shortchange God's nature and character by failing to consider his glory. And I'll just close with this. Like John Stott said, few things in our lives demonstrate our anxieties, demonstrate our ambitions, demonstrate our cares the way that prayer does. So as Paul bows his knees and pleads these things on behalf of these men and women in Ephesus, Let's pray these kinds of things for each other. Let's include this in the content of our prayers. Let's care enough about these things and about one another to pray this way. Let's pray that we would be strengthened with power, neither abusing it nor shying away from those places where we're meant to use it. Let's pray that we would be strengthened in love, where our inability to comprehend it fully would actually fuel our worship and our desire to taste even more that love of Christ. And let's pray that we would be strengthened for God's glory, where in us, God is made much of and seen for all his worth and all his magnificence in our world. Pray that we would be strengthened with power, shaped by love for the ultimate end of God's glory. Amen. And pray for us. Jesus, I pray these things for my friends, for the men and women in this room this morning. Would you strengthen us with power by your Spirit? May Christ dwell in our hearts through faith. For many of us, he already does dwell in our hearts by faith because you have worked your power on our behalf. For those who don't yet know you, would you do that work? Would you open eyes to see our need for you, Jesus, to come to put our faith in you? I pray that you would strengthen us in your love, that we, as we are rooted and grounded in your love, that you would give us more strength to comprehend the depth of your love, though we may never know it in full. May the real taste of it that we've had in our life just continue to compel us, to drive us to know more. And may you strengthen us that you might be glorified. You are the God we recognize and acknowledge. You can do more than we ask or think. And you can do that according to your power. 
which is at work in us. So in those moments where you don't do those things that we ask, or you don't do those things that we think, give us the ability to trust you, that you, because of your glory, are doing even better things than we could possibly think of, than we could possibly ask for. Help us to trust that. And weak and feeble and fickle as we are, would you meet us as we come to this table? Would even coming to this table be the place where you strengthen us? It's a meal. And just as meals strengthen our physical body, would you nourish us this morning as we come to this table? May we be reminded that Jesus, because of your life, because of your death, because of your resurrection, your goodness and your ability works on our behalf to meet us where we are, to strengthen us. And we come clinging to that truth with hearts of faith that you've given us. May we come rejoicing in that work that you've done. I pray in your name. Amen.